This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 5 Eschatology and Biblical Law But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 8.18 This verse is crucial to understanding the relationship between biblical law and compound growth over time. God grants gifts to covenantally faithful societies, These gifts are given by God in order to reinforce men's confidence in the reliability of the covenant, and so lead them to even greater faithfulness, which in turn leads to additional blessings. Visible blessings are to serve as confirmations of the covenant. God therefore gives men health and wealth that he may establish his covenant. When men respond in faith and obedience, a system of visible, positive feedback is created. Biblical history is linear. It has a beginning, creation, meaning, sin and redemption, and an end, final judgment. It was Augustine's emphasis on linear history over pagan, cyclical history that transformed the historical thinking of the West. But the biblical view of history is more than linear. It is progressive. It involves visible cultural expansion. It is this faith in cultural progress which has been unique to modern Western civilization. This was not due to Augustine as such, for there was an element of otherworldliness, a dualism between the progress of the soul and the rise and fall of earthly civilizations in Augustine's view of time. It was the Reformation, and especially the Puritan vision, which brought the idea of progress to the West. The Puritans believed that there is a relationship between covenantal obedience and cultural advance. This optimistic outlook was secularized by 17th century Enlightenment thinkers, and its waning in the 20th century threatens the survival of Western humanistic civilization. The Postmillennialism and Common Grace The postmillennial system requires a doctrine of common grace and common curse. It does not require a doctrine of universal regeneration during the period of millennial blessings. In fact, no postmillennial Calvinist can afford to be without a doctrine of common grace, one which links external blessings to the fulfillment of external covenants. There has to be a period of external blessings during the final generation. Something must hold that culture together so that Satan can once again go forth and deceive the nations. The Calvinist denies that men can lose their salvation, meaning their regenerate status. The rebels of that last day are therefore not formally regenerate men. Nevertheless, they are men with power, or at least the trappings of power. They are powerful enough to delude themselves that they can destroy the people of God. And power, as I emphasize throughout this book, is not the product of antinomian or chaos-oriented philosophy. The very existence of a military chain of command demands a concept of law and order. Satan commands an army on that final day. 
the post-millennial vision of the future paints a picture of historically incomparable blessings. It also tells of a final rebellion that leads to God's total and final judgment. Like the long-lived men in the days of Methuselah, judgment comes upon them in the midst of power, prosperity, and external blessings. God has been gracious to them all to the utmost of His common grace. He has been gracious in response to their covenantal faithfulness to His civil law order. And He has been gracious in order to pile the maximum possible quantity of hot coals on their God-hating heads. In contrast to Van Til's all-millennialist vision of the future, we must say, when common grace is extended, not reduced, to its maximum limits possible in history, then the crack of doom has come. Doom for the rebels. Van Til's Dilemma Van Til destroyed any remaining hope in natural law or a common ground philosophy. He took the insights of Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink and extended these insights to their biblical and logical conclusion. The impossibility of any natural law common ground link between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. But Van Til never adopted biblical law as an alternative to the natural law systems that he so thoroughly destroyed. This always hampered the development of his own philosophy. For the older Reformed view of the moral law was based squarely on the natural law concepts Van Til had destroyed. He was unwilling to challenge the older Reformed creeds on this point. His ideas have made creedal revisions mandatory, but he was unwilling to call publicly for a revision of the creeds leading to more biblically precise definitions of such 17th century concepts as general equity, moral law, and the covenant of works. This is an approach that can solve this dilemma. That is what this book attempts to do. By beginning with the concept of the covenant, we can produce a theology of common grace that recognizes the escalating ethical conflict between covenant breakers and covenant keepers, but which also allows for cooperation of the two through history. We must begin our inquiry with the work of the law in the sinner's heart. This must be discussed in relation to the law written in principle on regenerate hearts. A synthesis of covenant theology, eschatology, and Van Til's presuppositional apologetics makes possible a proper understanding of increasing ethical differentiation in history, but without the destruction of the foundation of history. Victory in History Specifically, we face the problem of victory in history. Victory in history is an inescapable concept. There can be no question of victory, either of covenant keepers or covenant breakers. The only question is, who will win? If covenant breakers rebel against biblical law and they become externally consistent with their own antinomian presuppositions, then they will either become historically impotent, as I argue, or historically triumphant, as Van Til argues. But surely the process of differentiation leads to the victory of one or the other. There is no neutrality anywhere in the universe. This, above all, is the message of Van Til's philosophy. But if there is no intellectual and moral neutrality, then there can be no cultural, civic, or any other kind of public institutional neutrality. Van Til argues that it is the reprobate who will be nearly victorious in history, not the church. Only at the end of time do the covenant breakers face the face, the fact of defeat. Van Til writes, But when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, 
the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. Yet Van Til has written in another place that the rebel against God is like a little child who has to sit on his father's lap in order to slap his face. How can unbelievers try to slap God's face by slapping God's people if they are not metaphorically sitting on his lap? How can they get sufficient power to injure God's church if they have denied everything God teaches about how to gain and retain power, conforming to his external laws? What then can Van Til have meant by his concept of increasing epistemological self-consciousness? Does this mean that sinners grow more consistent with their God-denying, law-denying chaos philosophy? This seems to be what Van Til has in mind, rebellion leading to a reduction of common grace. But then how do these rebels gain power to do their evil work? As the wheat and tares grow to maturity, the amillennialist argues the tares become stronger and stronger culturally, while the wheat become weaker and weaker. Consider what is being said. As Christians work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, improving their creeds, improving cooperation with each other on the basis of agreement about the creeds, as they learn about the law of God as it applies in their own era, as they become skilled in applying the law of God that they have learned about, they become culturally impotent. They become infertile also, it would seem. They do not become fruitful and multiply. Or if they do, they're best to follow this commandment. They are left without the blessing of God, a blessing which He has promised to those who follow the laws He has established. In short, the increase of epistemological self-consciousness on the part of Christians leads to cultural impotence. On the other hand, as rebels develop their philosophy of antinomianism, the religion of evolutionary chaos, on the religion of revolution, they become more powerful as they depart from the presuppositions concerning God, man, law, and time that made possible Western technology and economic growth. They become richer. As they learn who they are and who God is, they appropriate the fruits of the righteous. In short, except at the day of judgment, the following Bible verse is not true. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Proverbs thirteen, twenty-two. But what good will it do Christians after the resurrection to inherit the filthy cultural rags of the pre-resurrection world? What good will it do to have God hand back to a mortal, sin-free people the accumulated wealth of anti-God, self-consistent humanists? And why would these humanists have been able to operate God's pre-resurrection world in the first place. It operates in terms of law, meaning God's covenantal law. But epistemologically self-conscious sinners would obviously refuse to abide by such covenantal laws, assuming that they were acting consistently with their religious presuppositions. If all of this makes no sense, it is because Van Til's concept of common grace in history makes no sense. We need to discuss the foundation of victory in history as the Bible presents it. I tie my discussion of the principles of victory to the covenant structure of Deuteronomy. The tool of dominion that God gives to His people is His revealed law. Abandon biblical law, and you thereby abandon any hope of long-term victory. Abandon your commitment to biblical law, and you become an antinomian. Antinomianism The word antinomian is always used in a pejorative sense. It should therefore be used precisely. It is too easy to call anyone who takes a stricter view of law than you do a legalist, and anyone who takes a more lax view an antinomian. 
we must also specify what nomos, law, we are talking about. Most Christians reject the label of antinomian, a appeal, an appeal to their commitment to a concept of moral law. They categorically reject the validity in New Testament times of Hebrew judicial law. But they do this supposedly in the interests of defending a higher view of law, which they call moral law. They have been taking this approach to Old Testament civil law since the days of the early church, and they have invariably mixed in large portions of Greek philosophy and Roman law. Such concepts as moral law, natural law, and cosmonomic law have served theologians as substitutes for biblical civil law. What the Bible presents is a concept of God-revealed law which possesses at least four features. 1. Permanent judicial principles. 2. Concrete case law ordinances. 3. Specification as to when and how to apply the specific ordinance. And 4. Principles of interpretation, a hermeneutic, that inform us how changing historical circumstances after the resurrection have altered the specific application of ordinances. It is not morally legitimate for Christians to seek refuge from their God-given responsibilities to make moral and judicial decisions. Yet they attempt to do just this by appealing to a vague, undefined, zero-content system of moral law that is no longer related to the specific case law applications of the Old Testament. Any attempt to escape these responsibilities is a symptom of antinomianism, that is, anti-biblical law. Those who cling to a zero content make up your judicial decisions as you go along, but always in the name of the New Testament ethics, sort of moral law have adopted a form of antinomianism. Because theonomists reject this humanism-influenced concept of natural law, principles of law that are unconnected to Old Testament case laws, Reformed theologians who have not yet understood Van Til's rejection of all common ground philosophy and natural law theology have been quick to point to the theonomists' abandonment of some of Calvin's discussions of natural law. These critics are correct. Theonomists have indeed abandoned Calvin's 16th century understanding of natural law. Van Til has left, left them with no choice. He destroyed the intellectual case for natural law. Natural law philosophy was pre-Darwinian, humanism's crucial alternative to both biblical law and moral chaos. But there is theological progress in life, both for the saved and the lost. The more consistent humanists and the Vantillians have recognized that Darwin destroyed natural law theology and philosophy. The Vantillians have also recognized that Vantill has destroyed Princeton Seminary's common sense realism. A disastrous 18th and 19th century attempt to baptize Scottish Enlightenment philosophy and rear the illegitimate infant in a Christian home. Something must be built on the ruins. Theonomists have an answer, a type of covenant theology that acknowledges biblical law as the source of Christian ethics and therefore of Christian dominion. All Millennialism's Grim Choices I am faced with an unpleasant conclusion. The amillennialist version of the common grace doctrine adopts either antinomianism or a doctrine of an historically impotent gospel, or both. It argues that God no longer respects his covenantal law order, and that Deuteronomy's teaching about the positive feedback process of covenantal law is invalid in New Testament times. The only way for the amillennialist to avoid the charge of antinomianism and still remain an amillennialist is for him to, one, 
abandon the concept of increasing epistemological self-consciousness, or else, two, adopt the doctrine of an historically impotent gospel. Here's my reasoning. The amillennialist who insists that he is not an antinomian must proclaim the legitimacy and power of biblical law. It is not enough to claim that biblical law is ethically correct. He must argue that God empowers the Christian to obey it, and that this obedience produces positive feedback. This is what the theonomic postmillennialist argues. But the amillennialist is not postmillennial, so he faces two very difficult questions. If the law is both legitimate and efficacious in history, then why do Christians lose to the covenant breakers? If this defeat is not due to the failure of God's law, then what does fail? There are two escape routes. First, if Christians fail to extend the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth because they do not in fact become increasingly epistemologically self-conscious over time, then their failure is not necessarily the failure of God's law. They ignore God's law because they do not become epistemologically self-conscious. They refuse to pick up God's tool of dominion. This is not the fault of the law. So their failure must be blamed on their lack of epistemological self-consciousness. Second, if Christians do become increasingly self-conscious epistemologically, as Van Til says that they will, then their failure to extend the visible kingdom must be related to one, the fundamental weakness or outright inapplicability of biblical law, the assertion of antinomianism, or two, the failure of the gospel to win men to Christ, or three, both. Either the law has failed or the gospel has failed, or both. Deliberately misleading language. In any case, the amillennialist proclaims that Satan will win in history until that final day that ends history. The church fails in its mission to evangelize the world, disciple the nations, and subdue the earth to the glory of God. This is the heart and soul of the amillennialist's theory of history. The church fails. He may talk victory, indeed, the language of amillennialists is filled with victorious-sounding phrases, but he really means historical defeat. It is this schizophrenia of language that is so reminiscent of Barth's use of biblical terminology to promote humanism. The words do not mean what they seem. The amillennialist can no more bring himself to proclaim the Church of Jesus Christ loses in history than the Barthian can bring himself to proclaim the Bible is completely wrong and deliberately misleading when it speaks of a literal place called hell. They will not say clearly what they really believe. Those of us who really do believe in the external victory of God's people in history find annoying some amillennialists' endless announcements of victory. Van Til at least avoids such, such language. R.B. Kuypers, The Glorious Body of Christ, doesn't. Chapter 42, Conqueror of the World, is filled with the language of victory. Amazing as it may seem, the insignificant church is out to conquer the world. Not only is it striving to do this, it is succeeding. And surpassing strange to say, not only is victory in sight for the church, it is a present reality. The word succeeding indicates progress. The words present reality give away the game. In the future, we can call the church's continuing decline in influence from its present pathetic condition of cultural impotence a victory. He includes a, sub a subsection, the duty of conquest. He calls Christians to an earthly battle that his eschatology denies they can win, but he refuses to state this explicitly. He fools them with misleading language. He also includes another subsection, the reality of victory. He writes, 
That the church will in the end overcome the world is a foregone conclusion, for it will share in the ultimate and complete triumph of Christ, its head. This is a devious way of admitting that the church in history will not overcome the world in history, and that any victory it will enjoy will be post-history, when the fire of God interrupts history at the final judgment. The church, in the amillennial framework, has about as much to do with this final victory of Christ over the world as a little old lady has in locking up a gang of muggers while she is being beaten to a pulp. When the police finally arrive, the church's role in Christ's victory is that of a helpless, impotent victim whose only hope is that a deliverer might arrive in the nick of time, meaning at the end of time. Her only hope is to be delivered from the burdens of history. His next sentence is even more telling. But Scripture also teaches that the church's victory over the world is the present reality. You call today's mess victory? In short, he refuses to offer a biblical theory of history, an explanation of how the church gets from the visible impotence of the present to the glorious victory of the future. The church's victory is non-historical in the present, and it will be post-historical in the future. Kuiper warned against the theology of Karl Barth, but his view of church history, especially its future history, was essentially Barthian. Barth proclaimed two forms of history, a history of real-world real events, which he called history, and Christ's world of hidden history. Gesetik, pronounced Gashikta, a trans-historical, non-rational encounter that cannot be revealed by or judged by the factual records and documents of history. This way, the non-Christian reality of history does not call into question the meaning of man's encounter with Christ. Kuiper does approximately the same thing. He differentiates between 1. the real historical world, where as time goes by you will get your Christian head kicked in by the reprobates, and 2. the above historical world of realized victory, which cannot be revealed by or judged by the factual historical reality of the Church's increasingly visible defeat. Kuiper hides the spiritual victory of the Church safely outside of the grim reality of reprobate-dominated history, just as Barth hides man's non-rational encounter with Christ outside of fact-based history. He proclaims a world of Victoria Gekshti in place of Barth's Gekshti. Quite frankly, postmillennialists are sorely tempted to classify both of these dualistic theories of history as Horsegekshti. Understandably, this kind of misuse of the language of victory is annoying to those who are really serious about developing a theory of Christian victory in history. Better Van Til's forthrightness, a theory of history that openly admits that Christians, like that little old lady, are going to get mugged and mugged ever more frequently and ever more viciously. Reprobation by Knowledge Van Til writes, but when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful, on the other hand, for the day of grace, the day of undeveloped differentiation. Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier, rather than the later stage of history. Consider the implications of this argument. Presenting the gospel to unregenerate men helps to make them more aware of what they are and who they are.
But at this earlier stage of history, this degree of self-awareness on their part is not so great that they seek to suppress Christians, just as they do not yet fully attempt to suppress the testimony of God to them in the revelation of the creation and also the Bible. Later, however, as this self-awareness of the unregenerate increases, and they adhere more and more to their religious and philosophical premises concerning the origins of matter out of chaos and the ultimate return of all matter into pure randomness, this vision of ultimate chaos somehow makes them more confident. Unlike the visible breakdown in self-confidence that just this sort of philosophy is producing today in the West, they will begin to persecute the church. Things will go from bad to worse for the church as the church attempts to present more people with the gospel. The more the unregenerate here, the more they will be able to suppress the church. Van Til, therefore, says that there is a good reason to rejoice that we live today rather than tomorrow. Van Til really does understand the implications of amillennialism. On the other hand, the Christians are humble before God, but confident before the creation which they are called by God to subdue. After all, they have biblical law and the Holy Spirit. This confidence eventually leads the Christians into historic defeat and disaster, says those amillennialists who believe in increasing epistemological self-consciousness. In contrast to the ever-weakening band of faithful covenant keepers, the ethical rebels are arrogant before God and claim that all nature is ruled by the meaningless laws of probability, ultimate chaos, including moral chaos. By immersing themselves in the philosophy of chaos, covenant breakers will somehow be able to emerge totally victorious across the whole face of the earth, says the amillennialist, a victory which is called to a halt only by the physical intervention of Jesus Christ at the final judgment. A commitment to lawlessness in the amillennial version of common grace leads to external victory. This makes no sense theologically, let alone morally. Yet it is consistent with Van Til's explanation of declining common grace over time. Where did he go wrong? Van Til is correct when he writes that there will be an increase in everyone's self-knowledge, or what he calls epistemological self-consciousness. Saved and lost will become increasingly aware of just where they stand philosophically and ethically, and who they are historically. But Van Til has erred in an important point. As a Christian philosopher, he knows that salvation is not by knowledge. The Greeks were incorrect when they argued that if man knows the good, he will do the good. Paul says precisely the opposite. A person can know the good, but still do evil. Romans 7. When Van Til never openly admits that is this, neither is reprobation by knowledge, including self-knowledge. It is not simply that evil men know the good but refuse to do it. It is that they know the bad, but it is not bad enough for them. Evil's lever, good. Covenant breakers must do externally in order to increase their ability to do evil. They need to use the lever of God's law in order to increase their influence. These rebels will not be able to act consistently with their own epistemological presuppositions and still be able to exercise power. They want power more than they want philosophical consistency. This is especially true of Western covenant breakers who live in the shadow of Christian dominion theology. In short, they restrain the working out of the implications of their own epistemological self-consciousness. Believers in randomness, chaos, and meaningless, the power seekers nevertheless choose structure, discipline, and the rhetoric of ultimate victory.
If a modern investigator would like to see as fully consistent a pagan culture as one might imagine, he could visit the African tribe, the Ik. Colin Turnbull did, in his book The Mountain People, 1973, is a classic. He found almost total rebellion against law, family law, civic law, all law. Yet he also found a totally impotent, beaten tribal people who were rapidly becoming extinct. They were harmless to the West because they were more self-consistent than the West's Satanists. The difference between the humanist power seekers and the more fully consistent but suicidal tribal pagans is the difference between the communists and the Ik. It is the difference between power religion and escape religion. Some Eastern mystic who seeks escape through aesthetic techniques of withdrawal, or some Western imitator with an alpha wave machine and earphones, become an instant electronic yogi, is acting far more consistently with the anti-Christian philosophy of ultimate meaningless than a communist revolutionary is. The yogi is not fully consistent. He still needs discipline techniques, and discipline implies an orderly universe, but he is more consistent than the communist. He is not seeking the salvation of a world of complete illusion, maya, through the exercise of power. Satan needs a chain of command in order to exercise power. Thus, in order to create the greatest havoc for the church, Satan and his followers need to imitate the church. Like the child who needs to sit on his father's lap in order to slap him, so does the rebel need a crude imitation of God's dominion theology in order to exercise power. A child who rejects the idea of his father's lap cannot seriously hope to slap him. The anti-Christian has officially adopted an anti-lap theory of existence. He admits no cause and effect relationship between lap and slap. To the extent that he acts consistently with this view, he becomes impotent to attack God's people. This means that with an increase in epistemological self-consciousness, the ethical aspects of the separation become more and more fundamental. Not logic, but ethics is primary. Reprobation is by ethics, not logic. Thus, the increasing epistemological self-consciousness on the part of the power-seeking unbeliever does not lead him to apply Satan's philosophy of ultimate meaningless and chaos. It leads him instead to apply Satan's counterfeit of dominion religion, the religion of power. He can achieve power only by refusing to become fully consistent with Satan's religion of chaos. He needs organization and capital, God's gifts of common grace, in order to produce maximum destruction. Like the Soviet Union, which has always had to import or steal the bulk of its technology from the West in order to build up an arsenal to destroy the West, so does the Satanist have to import Christian intellectual and moral capital in order to wage an effective campaign against the Church. This is the key point in my argument against Van Til's view of common grace. First, the Christian exercises dominion by becoming epistemologically self-conscious, meaning morally and logically consistent with the new man within him, and therefore by adhering even more closely to God's law. Biblical law is the covenant keeper's fully self-consistent tool of dominion. Second, the covenant breaker exercises power by becoming inconsistent with his ultimate philosophy of randomness. He cannot commit effective crimes only by stealing the worldview of Christians. The bigger the crimes he wishes to commit, the ethical impulse of evil, the more carefully he must plan, the epistemological impulse of righteousness counting the costs. Luke 14, 28-30 The Christian can work to fulfill the dominion covenant through a life of consistent thought and action. The anti-Christian 
can achieve an offensive, destructive campaign against the Christians, as contrasted to a self-destructive life of drugs and debauchery, only by stealing the biblical worldview and twisting it to evil purposes. In short, to become really evil, you need to become pretty good. The Bible says that all those who hate God love death, Proverbs 8.36b. Therefore, for God-haters to live consistently, they would have to commit suicide. It is not surprising that the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus was fascinated with the possibility of suicide. It was consistent with his philosophy of meaninglessness. To become a historic threat to Christians, unbelievers must restrain their own ultimate impulse, namely the quest for death. Thus, their increase in epistemological self-consciousness over time is incomplete until the final rebellion, when their very act of rebellion brings on the final judgment. It will be the final culmination in the history of Satan's earlier act of envious defiance in luring the mobs to crucify Christ, an act of violence that ensured his total judgment and defeat. Yet he did it anyway, out of spite. When God finally removes his restraint on their suicidal impulse, they will launch their suicidal rebellion. The removal of God's restraint is always a prelude to judgment. Van Til views Satan's actions as the cross, as an intellectual failure. Satan managed to have Christ crucified in order to destroy him. Did he not know that by the crucifixion of Christ his own kingdom would be destroyed? So we see that, though, on the one hand, Satan's power of ingenuity is great. He constantly frustrates himself in his purposes. He is constantly mistaken in his knowledge of reality. But was it Satan's erroneous knowledge of reality that thwarted him? Did he not know? Van Til asks rhetorically. Of course he knew. He did not make a mistake. He simply saw an opportunity to get even temporarily, and he took it, no matter what the cost. Reprobation is not by knowledge. Reprobation is by ethics. Satan is suicidal, not irrational. He is envy-driven, not stupid. So the ethical war will escalate. Whom should we expect God to bless in the escalating ethical war? The Christian whose worldview is consistent in God-honoring, or the God-hater whose worldview is inconsistent in God-defying? Who will be burdened by greater moral and intellectual schizophrenia as time goes on and epistemological self-consciousness increases? Whose plans of conquest will be inconsistent with his philosophy of existence? The Christian or the anti-Christian? Who is truly growing in epistemological self-consciousness? The Christian or the anti-Christian? The answer should be obvious. Unfortunately, for Reformed theological scholarship in the 20th century, amillennialism makes the obvious obscure, and amillennialism has been the dominant reform eschatology since the 1930s. Amillennialism has things backwards. It should be clear by now that the amillennialist version of the relationship between biblical law and the creation is completely backwards. No doubt Satan wishes it were a true version. No doubt he wants his followers to believe that by progressively adhering to biblical law, Christians will fall into increasing cultural impotence. No doubt he wants his followers to believe this preposterous error. But how can a consistent Christian believe it? How can a Christian believe that adherence to biblical law produces cultural impotence, while commitment to philosophical chaos, the religion of satanic revolution, leads to cultural victory? There is no doubt in my mind 
that the amillennialists do not want to teach such doctrine. Yet that is where their amillennial pessimism inevitably leads. Dutch Calvinists preach the continuing New Testament validity of the cultural mandate, Dominion Covenant. Yet, they simultaneously preach that this mandate from God cannot be fulfilled in history. They refuse to acknowledge the future reality of Christian dominion on earth before the final judgment by means of the positive feedback aspect of covenantal blessings, from obedience to blessing to greater obedience. Biblical law is basic to the fulfillment of the cultural mandate. It is our tool of dominion. There are only four possibilities concerning law. Revealed law, natural law, chaos, or a syncretistic combination of the above. For example, statistical regularity, a little natural law, and a little randomness. The amillennial tradition has outspokenly denied the first possibility. The binding character of Old Testament law and New Testament times. We do not find treaties on the contemporary application of biblical law written by amillennialist theologians. Therefore, the amillennialist who preaches the obligation of trying to fulfill the cultural mandate, which he also says cannot be fulfilled in history, apart from the tool of biblical law, thereby plunges himself either into the camp of the chaos cults, mystics, revolutionaries, or into the camp of the natural law, common ground philosophers, or into a truly schizophrenic camp which teaches a mixture of verbal mysticism and natural law. I have in mind the Dewey-Weirdian cosmonomic law philosophy. Dewey-Weird's mysticism. This leads me to my next point. It is somewhat speculative and may not be completely accurate. It is an idea which ought to be pursued, however, to see if it is accurate. I think that the reason why the philosophy of Hermann Dewey-Weird, the Dutch philosopher of law, had some temporary impact in Dutch Calvinist intellectual circles in the late 1960s and early 1970s, is that Dewey Weird's theory of sphere sovereignty, sphere laws that are not to be filled in by means of revealed Old Testament law, is consistent with the amillennial Dutch version of the cultural mandate. Dewey Weird's system and Dutch amillennialism are essentially antinomian against biblical law. This is why I wrote my 1967 essay, Social Antinomianism, in response to the Dewey-Weirdian professor at the Free University of Amsterdam, A. Troost. Either the Dewey-Weirdians wind up as mystics, or else they try to create a new kind of common ground philosophy to link believers and unbelievers. Sometimes they try to do both. Their language is the language of mysticism, but their strategy is common ground. It was Dewey Weird's outspoken resistance to Old Testament and New Testament authority over the content of his hypothesized sphere laws that has led his increasingly radical, increasingly antinomian followers into anti-Christian paths. Van Til recognized this lack of content in Dewey Weird's methodology, just as he recognized the common ground nature of Dewey Weird's system. But since he himself never developed an, apo an apologetic method based on the covenantal requirements of revealed biblical law, he could not thrust an exegetical stake into Dewey Weird's epistemological heart. Like Dracula rising from the dead, Dewey Weird's philosophy keeps making reappearances, though increasingly dressed up in the guerrilla uniforms worn by safely tenured professors of liberation theology.
designer camouflage, one might say. All millennialists have preached the Dominion Covenant, cultural mandate, and then have turned around and denied the efficacy of biblical law and culture. They necessarily deny the cultural efficacy of biblical law because their eschatological interpretation has led them to conclude that there can be no external cultural victory in time and on earth by faithful Christians. Epistemological self-consciousness will increase, but things only get worse over time. Biblical law, even when empowered by the Holy Spirit, is culturally impotent. Klein versus Bonson If you preach that biblical law produces positive feedback, both personally and culturally, that God rewards covenant keepers and punishes covenant breakers in history, then you are preaching a system of positive growth. You are preaching the progressive fulfillment dominion covenant. Only if you deny that there is any long-term sustainable relationship between external covenant keeping and external success in life, a denial made explicit by Meredith G. Klein, can you escape from the post-millennial implications of biblical law. This is why it is odd that Greg Bonson insists on presenting his defense of biblical law apart from his well-known post-millennialism. What these studies present is a position in Christian normative ethics. They do not logically commit those who, are, who agree with them to any particular school of eschatological interpretation. He is correct. Logically, there is no connection. Covenantally, the two doctrines are inescapable. When biblical law is preached, when biblical law is preached, believed, and obeyed, there must be blessings. Blessings lead inescapably, to victory. Perhaps he has decided that it is unwise to try to fight a two-front war, theonomy and postmillennialism. My attitude is that it is giving away the battle not to fight on both fronts simultaneously, which is what this book is about. On the other hand, perhaps he wanted to narrow the focus of his discussion of ethics to the question of the rightness or wrongness, biblically speaking, of adopting biblical law in New Testament times, without any consideration of the historical consequences of the covenantal process of positive feedback, Deuteronomy 8, 18. If this was his intention, then his books go too far down the road toward the issue of the empowering of Christians to obey biblical law. As soon as you raise the issue of the Spirit's empowering, you raise the unified issue of positive feedback, external growth, and long-term victory. To escape the postmillennial implications of this argument, the defender of theonomy, God's law, would have to argue that the preaching of the law does not necessarily have to produce a faithful, sustainable response in the hearts and lives of people over time. Positive feedback between covenantal faithfulness and covenantal blessings can still be broken, the defender would admit, just as it was broken every time in the Old Testament. Theologically, it is, it is possible for an amillennial or a premillennial defender of biblical law to argue this way and I know a handful in both camps who do. But Bonson's particular defense of theonomy makes such an argument difficult to sustain. Empowering by the Spirit He has argued repeatedly that what distinguishes biblical law in the New Testament era from the Old Covenant era is the vastly greater empowering of Christians by the Holy Spirit to obey the law. I agree entirely with this argument. The Spirit's empowering is a fundamental distinction between the two covenantal periods. It is also interesting to note 
that the only broad-based acceptance of the theonomic position is taking place in charismatic circles, circles in which the positive power of the Holy Spirit is stressed. But this greater empowering by the Spirit must be made manifest in history if it is to be distinguished by the repeated failure of believers in the Old Covenant era to stay in the positive feedback mode, blessings, greater faith, greater blessings, etc., it is this positive feedback aspect of biblical law in New Testament times which links theonomy with postmillennialism, though not necessarily postmillennialism with theonomy. See chapter 6 on the antinomian theology of Jonathan Edwards. Bonson has argued forcefully that any discussion of the expansion of God's kingdom must include a discussion of the visible manifestations of this kingdom. To speak of the kingdom of God without being able to point to its expansion of influence outside the narrow confines of the institutional church is misleading. This argument also is correct. But what of a parallel argument? If we were to argue that the greater empowering of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era is only a kind of theoretical backdrop to history, and therefore biblical law will not actually be preached and obeyed in this pre-final judgment age, which is the amillennialist argument, then we would really be abandoning the whole idea of the Holy Spirit's empowering of Christians and Christian society and history. It would be an argument analogous to the kingdom arguments of the amillennialist. Yes, God has a kingdom, and Christians are part of it, and it is a victorious kingdom. However, there are no visible signs of the king or his kingdom, and Christians will be increasingly defeated in history. Similarly, yes, the Spirit empowers Christians to obey biblical law, however, they will not adopt or obey biblical law in history. Will the progressive manifestation of the fruits of obeying biblical law also be strictly internal? If so, then what has happened to the positive feedback aspect of covenant law? What has happened to empowering by the Holy Spirit? I would argue that the greater empowering by the Holy Spirit by God's people to obey and enforce biblical law is what invalidates the implicit amillennialist position regarding the ineffectiveness of biblical law in New Testament times. If Christians obey it, then the positive feedback process is inevitable. It is part of the theonomic aspect of the creation, from victory unto victory. If some segments of the church refuse to obey it, then those segments will eventually lose influence, money, and power. Their place will be taken by those Christian churches that obey God's laws, and that will therefore experience the covenant's external blessings. These churches will spread the gospel more effectively as a result. This is the positive feedback aspect of biblical law. Klein attacked both of Bonson's doctrines, biblical law and postmillennialism, in his critique of theonomy. But Bonson judiciously responded to Klein's criticisms of his postmillennial eschatology only in an addendum, stating explicitly that he did not regard this aspect of Klein's critique as logically relevant to the topic of theonomy. But Klein was covenantally correct. There is unquestionably a necessary connection in New Testament times between a covenantal concept of biblical law and postmillennial eschatology. Klein rejects the idea of a New Testament covenantal law order, and he also rejects postmillennialism. Klein and his fellow amillennialists are consistent in the rejection of both biblical law and postmillennialism. Postmillennialists should be equally consistent in linking the two positions. We must argue covenantally, and this necessarily involves the question of the positive feedback of covenantal blessings and the Church's empowering by the Holy Spirit. 
if we expect the possibility, sorry, if we accept the possibility of a defense of God's law that rejects the historic inevitability of the long-term expansion of Christian dominion through the covenant's positive feedback, then we face a major problem. The one Bonson's theory of the empowering of the Spirit has raised. How to explain the difference between the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel? If the Christian church fails to build the visible kingdom by means of biblical law and the power of the gospel, despite the resurrection of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then what kind of religion are we preaching? Why is the church a significant improvement culturally and socially over Old Testament Israel? Why does such a theology say about the gospel? What kind of power does the gospel offer men for the overcoming of the effects of sin in history? Is Satan's one-time success in tempting Adam never going to be overcome in history? Will Satan attempt to comfort, comfort himself throughout eternity with the thought that by defeating Adam, he made it impossible for mankind to work out the Dominion Covenant in history, even the face of the death and resurrection of Christ? If we argue this way, the failure of a spirit-empowered biblical law order to produce the visible kingdom, then we must find an answer to this question. Why is sin triumphant in history in the face of the gospel? Then there is the impolite but inevitable question. Why is Jesus a loser in history? And, just for the record, let me ask another question. When in history will we see the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 32, when churls will no longer be called liberal, generous people shall no longer be called churls, and presumably the historic defeat of the church will no longer be called the victory of God's kingdom? Preaching External Defeat All millennialists, by preaching eschatological impotence culturally, thereby immerse themselves in quicksand, the quicksand of antinomianism. Some sands are quicker than others. Eventually, they swallow up anyone so foolish as to try to walk through them. Antinomianism leads into the pits of impotence and retreat. No one wants to risk everything he owns, including his life, in a battle his commander says will not be won. Only a few die-hard souls will attempt it. You can build a ghetto with such a theology. You cannot build a civilization. All millennial Calvinists will continue to be plagued by Dewey Weirdians, mystics, natural law comp compromisers, and antinomians of all sorts until they finally abandon their all-millennial eschatology. Furthermore, biblical law must also be preached. It must be seen as the tool of cultural reconstruction. It must be seen as operating now in New Testament times. It must be seen that there is a relationship between covenantal faithfulness and obedience to law. That without obedience there is no faithfulness, no matter how emotional believers may become, or how sweet the gospel tastes for a while. Furthermore, there are external blessings that follow covenantal obedience to God's law order. Premillennialism and Biblical Law Perhaps I should devote an entire chapter on this subject, but I do not think it warrants the space. That dispensational premillennialism rejects Old Testament law for this dispensation, the church age, is well known. The entire hermeneutic of dispensationalism is based on radical discontinuities in God's dealing with people in seven, or thereabouts, different dispensations. Biblical law does not apply to our dispensation. It is true, they admit, that biblical law will be reinstated in the post-rapture millennial age for an Old Testament-type theocracy under Jesus will be set up. Nevertheless, there will be a final rebellion of Satan at the end of the millennium. 
I have never seen any discussion by a dispensationalist concerning the relationship between common grace and this final satanic outbreak. Will common grace at last trigger Satan's rebellion? I have seen no premillennial author tackle this question. I suspect that such a theory of Satan's rebellion could be consistent with dispensationalism. But generally, dispensationalist discussions of the final rebellion have more to do with God's simply allowing Satan more chain to hang himself with. I also think they have in mind a more literal chain than covenant theologians do. Revelation 20, 1-3 In any case, a theology of common grace would be difficult to apply consistently to a post-rapture millennial era in which resurrected, sin-free, non-reproducing, eternal Christians are working side-by-side with sinful, mortal, redeemed, and unredeemed people. I suppose, suppose such a theology could be constructed as an academic exercise, but there would be no commercial market for the published results. This sort of hypothetical question has little to do with building a strategy for the Church prior to the rapture. What is significant for the discussion at hand is that with respect to our own era, prior to Christ's return and the rapture of the saints, as we also find in all all millennial systems, the Church fails in its task of worldwide dominion. The world is not going to be filled with Christians who exercise visible cultural dominion this side of the rapture. The covenant's positive feedback relationship between external adherence to biblical law and external dominion supposedly does not operate in this premillennial era. In this respect, premillennialists agree with all millennialists. Very few premillennialists have thought about, let alone written about, the concept of common grace. It has no practical relevance to premillennial theology. Few premillennialists believe that we are still under the terms of the Dominion Covenant. The premillennial Bible Presbyterian Church in 1970 categorically denied the New Testament validity of the cultural mandate. If some premillennialist does have a theory of common grace which applies to the Church Age, meaning history this side of the rapture, it would have to be similar to the amillennialist version. It would deny the relevance of the positive feedback process of covenantal blessings. Nevertheless, it would at least be more consistent than the amillennial version. Since the cultural mandate is no longer in force, according to most premillennialists, the schizophrenic and frustrating program of Dutch amillennialism is absent. At least, premillennialists do not feel called by God to do what God says cannot and will not be done in history anyway. The premillennialist says that the cultural victory of Bible-believing people will come on earth only after the great discontinuous event of the rapture. This is the blessed hope. It will be exclusively God's work. The church is off the hook. Off the hook. This is the heart and soul of premillennial social ethics. Amillennialists are on the hook. As Rush Dooney once remarked to me, amillennialists are simply premillennialists without earthly hope. C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis understood that there is a war going on between Christ and Satan. His magnificent novel, The Hideous Strength, subtitled A Modern Fairy Tale for Grown-Ups, deals with the fusion of magic, technology, and the demonic quest for power. Perhaps better than any Christian writer of the century, he understood Satan and Satan's mode of operations. We cannot say as much for his understanding of Christianity. His theology was muddled at best, and his epistemology was clearly a mixture of Platonism and the Bible. So we would not normally go to Lewis to discover a solution to our problems. We go to him for an understanding of our era, however. His view of history was very much like Van Til's. 
he believed in the increase of epistemological self-consciousness over time. This progress over time removes the latitude for making moral decisions, for the issues of life become clearer. Here is a speech given by a college professor, possibly modeled after Lewis himself, in That Hideous Strength. If you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything you like, at a given point in its history, you always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts were quite, weren't quite so sharp. And, that's, and that there's going to be a time after that point where, when there is even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. The problem with Lewis's outlook is that he never suggested any way that Christians can make these moral decisions in the public realm. He told us of the war, told us that we would not be able to escape our responsibilities, told us that our decisions would become ever clearer, and yet refused to offer any hope that the public issues of any era could be solved by an appeal to the Bible. Indeed, he specifically rejected such a suggestion. He dismissed as unrealizable the creation of any distinct or distinctly Christian political party, a long-time ideal of many Dutch Christians. Christians do not agree on the means of attaining the proper goals of society, he argued. A Christian political party will wind up in a deadlock, or else the winning faction will force all rivals out. Then it will no longer be representative of Christians in society. So this minority party will attach itself to the nearest non-Christian political party. The problem, as Lewis saw it, is that the party will speak for Christendom, but will not in fact represent all of Christendom. By the mere act of calling itself the Christian party, it implicitly accuses all Christians who do not join it of apostasy and betrayal. It will be exposed, in an aggravated degree, to that temptation which the devil spares none of us at any time. The, t- the temptation of claiming for our favorite opinions that kind of degree of certainty and authority which really belongs only to our faith. This is an odd line of argumentation. First, what he describes as a strictly political problem is in fact the problem with any distinctly Christian institution. Christians need to do what is God's will, but in doing it, they exclude other acts as not being in God's will. Yet according to his view of history, these decisions will become clearer over time, and the range of Christian as well as non-Christian choices will become much narrower. So what is the problem? It should be easier as time goes on to build Christian institutions of all kinds, not just political organizations. Second, why doesn't the same problem of speaking in the name of the accepted moral sovereign afflict every religious, political, or ideological group? Why single out politics? Isn't ascertaining God's will equally a problem in all other institutions? Furthermore, why are Christian political coalitions so evil, so doomed to defeat? Aren't coalitions going on in every area of life all the time? Besides, why is the problem of coalitions a uniquely Christian problem? Humanists make coalitions all the time. Yes, even highly ideological humanists. Coalitions are basic to life. What he is really saying is that the humanists can run their institutions and our lives just fine, but Christians cannot. Not because Christians are presently incompetent, but simply because they are Christians. He argues that anyone who adds, Thus saith the Lord, to his earthly utterances, will insist that his conscience speaks more clearly, the more it is loaded with sin, 
And this comes from pretending that God has spoken when he has not spoken. Has God said? That was what Satan asked Eve. But God had said. And he had spoken to us too in his Bible. Dare we deny his words? Eve dared. See where it got her? And us? But Lewis feared those who speak concretely to real world problems in the name of God. We are back to Barthianism. God's will in history cannot be conveyed in cognitive sentences, creeds, political programs, economics, or anything else in this scientific factual universe. God does not speak to specific problems in history. This is the essence of Barthianism. It is also the essence of antinomianism. Perhaps Lewis was willing to accept creeds as God's word, but creeds are written by Christians who disagree with other Christians. That is the function of creeds to separate, exclude wrong-thinking Christians from better-thinking Christians. Creeds are hammered out in the midst of controversy, sometimes including political controversy, and sometimes even life-and-death controversy. Are we to deny, as Barth did, that God speaks cognitively to men in creeds? Deny that God speaks to any area of life, and you have denied God's jurisdiction in that area of life. Deny that men are responsible for, before God for searching out God's will and then working to apply it, and you have adopted the theology of mysticism. Then how are Christians to make moral decisions? Lewis appeals to that old, stoic standby, natural law. By the natural light he has shown us what means are lawful. To find out which one is efficacious, he has given us brains. The rest he has left to us. In short, do your own natural thing, but do not do it in the name of Jesus. What he recommended was an interdenominational voter society whose members will write letters to their political representatives. They will pester the politicians. But in whose name should they pester them? In God's name? If not, then haven't Christians become just another special interest group with no distinctly Christian platform? But he did offer some hope, a postmillennial hope. He ends the essay with these words, quote, There is a third way, by becoming a majority. He who converts his neighbor has performed the most practical Christian political act of all, end quote. What can we make of all this? He said that choices in life will become more epistemologically self-conscious. He was afraid of politicians who speak in God's name. He appealed to natural reason. He told Christians to pester politicians. Then he said to spread the gospel and become a majority. What then? It is all a muddle, but at least it is a four-page muddle. The endless publications of those who call for Christian relevance in society but who refused to turn to biblical law as God's inspired platform in every area of responsibility are no less muddled than Lewis and far more verbose. The principle is simple enough. No law of God, no jurisdiction of God. Until Christians get this straight in their thinking, they will remain either Christian activists who are publicly muddled and culturally irrelevant, or else Christian retreatists who are privately muddled and culturally irrelevant. Conclusion Those who are ethically subordinate to Satan can nevertheless receive external blessings if they obey God's law externally. At the final day, they will rebel. Thus, the postmillennialist does not preach that the whole world will someday be populated exclusively by regenerate people. But because he affirms that the whole world will experience cultural blessings as a result of the spread of the gospel, the postmillennialists need to have a doctrine of common grace in order to explain the final rebellion without having to adopt an Armenian doctrine of a fall from grace, meaning special grace. By denying the legitimacy of Old Testament law in New Testament times, all millennialists thereby abandon the tool of dominion, 
which God has given to his people to fulfill the terms of the, the Dominion Covenant, cultural mandate. They have abandoned God's program of positive feedback, the progressive sanctification of civilization. They have therefore abandoned an eschatology of victory in history. What is the primary impulse of all millennialism? Its defeat, eschatology, or its antinomianism? It is possible to make a good case for either. I think antinomianism is the primary impulse. If the conditional promises of Deuteronomy 28, 1-14 are taken seriously, and our empowering by the Holy Spirit is taken seriously, then the doctrine of historical progress can be taken seriously. This progress must become externalized through the biblical system of positive feedback. Deuteronomy 8, 18 To deny such historical institutional progress, the amillennialist must reject biblical law. Postmillennialism is a nice dream, as one Protestant Reformed Church pastor said from the pulpit. All millennialists can afford to ignore nice dreams. Biblical law, on the other hand, involves a direct assault on pietism, humanism, mysticism, and all other versions of the escape religion. It cannot be ignored. It calls men out of their monastic cloisters, their ghettos, and their sanctuaries. Preach biblical law, and you will not be dismissed as a dreamer. You will be challenged as a fanatic. I think antinomianism is the underlying motive of amillennialism. A war is in progress, a war with humanism. Humanism will not respect Christian sanctuaries. Humanism must be defeated. Biblical law is the weapon which Christians empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you have no weapons, you have an excuse not to fight. You run for your ghetto, as the Jews learned in Warsaw. This strategy has distinct limits. So the theonomists call men to pick up God's weapon, biblical law, to carry with them when they bring the gospel to the lost. There can be no more excuses for cultural impotence. Christians have the tool of dominion. It will do no good to say that Christians cannot win in history, for we have the weapons to win. Any excuse now is simply an unwillingness to join the battle. But as in the days of Deborah, there are many who choose not to fight. And someday, some future Deborah will sing a modern version of Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches, inlets. Judges 5.17 If progress is seen as exclusively internal, or at most ecclesiastical, as it is in all forms of amillennialism, then history inescapably becomes antinomian. Biblical law must be abandoned. Biblical law in New Testament times does not permit long-term failure. Biblical law necessarily must lead to positive, visible results, which in turn should reinforce faithfulness as well as serve as a light to the unconverted. Deuteronomy 4, 6-8 A city on the hill. Matthew 5, 14 All millennialism implicitly denies that a biblical city on a hill will be built. There will only be congregations in the catacombs, groups in the gulag. Van Til makes this plain. Once more, I cite his uncompromising analysis. But when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The full self-conscious re reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful, on the other hand, for the day of grace, the day of undeveloped differentiation. Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier rather than in the later stage of history and such influence on the public situation as we can affect, whether in society or in state, presupposes 
this undifferentiated stage of development. As time goes on, Christians lose. Van Til has therefore accepted the eschatology of the Athenian Acropolis. Only pagan gods and their followers can shine forth on the hills of history. Athens progressively triumphs over Jerusalem in time and on earth. Van Til is wrong. In summary, 1. Postmillennialism requires a doctrine of common grace and common curse. 2. The postmillennialist uses the common grace doctrine to provide an explanation for the final rebellion against God at the end of a period of millennial triumph for the kingdom. 3. Satan, Satanists need a full manifestation of the kingdom to rebel against at the end of history. 4. They do not fall from special grace when they rebel. 5. Therefore, as epistemological self-consciousness increases, Satanists feel a greater need to rebel. 6. Van Til says that as Christians grow more epistemologically self-conscious and consistent, they lose influence. The unbeliever, 7. The unbeliever, in fact, cannot become fully self-conscious and consistent without committing suicide. Proverbs 8, 36b. Number 8. God, therefore, restrains the full working out in history of the anti-Christian's epistemological self-consciousness until the final rebellion. 9. Satan needs to imitate the church in order to launch an effective attack against the church. 10. Christians can and will become more epistemologically self-conscious. 11. Christians can and will work out the implications of this greater self-knowledge in history. 12. Christians will therefore exercise greater authority over non-Christians, for their worldview is consistent with the creation's law order. 13. All millennialists do not believe in long-term, visible Christian victory. 14. They do not believe in biblical law as a tool of dominion. 15. If they believed in biblical law as a tool of dominion, they would have to give up their amillennialism. 16. Yet they call on Christians to attempt to fulfill the terms of the dominion covenant, creation mandate. 17. To be without biblical law is to operate in terms of autonomous, impersonal, natural law, or else mysticism, or some combination of the two. 18. Deweyweardianism is just such a combination. 19. Premillennialists agree with amillennialists concerning the irrelevance of biblical law today. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.